Now, if you have a Bible with you, I ask you that you would please turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. I'm going to start reading the psalm and then make a few comments on it. Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight, it like yesterday when it's past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it's cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath, we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the works, the work of our hands. Now, I've uh, chosen this psalm, or to chosen in our schedule, chosen to speak on this psalm particularly, because this is a very meaningful psalm to me. Um, in fact, uh, it was an instrumental text in my conversion when I was about 14 to 15 years old. Uh, I was in a moment of my life where I was searching for meaning and purpose, and uh, I was particularly anguished and uh, even had suicidal thoughts, questioning things in life, couldn't make sense of the world, an evil world, and the Lord made me come across this text. And I can still see clearly to this day, uh, kneeling down on my bedroom bed at night uh, in tears and asking the Lord for, to talk to me and show me something and coming with this text. And particularly, I found particularly touching the sincerity of the psalmist here and acknowledging his, the difficulties of, of life. And uh, what particularly gripped me was 
here in, in what we find in verse 12. And I hope that tonight you'll be able to see a little bit more of the beauty there is in this psalm. It's not, uh, some people say it's not a very happy psalm. It's not a very upbeat song. Imagine this was a song sang by the Israelites. This wouldn't be a very upbeat one. But I think there's a lot of value in what we find here. Now you notice uh, right out of, of, of the gate we have here on the title, this is part of the text, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This was written by Moses. So this is the oldest psalm we know as being the oldest psalm in the Psalter. At least the one we know it's the oldest. It was written by Moses. And if you remember, Moses is a particularly important figure in the Bible, especially for the Israelite people. Moses, the man that could have several titles. Man of God is the one given by uh, the text here. But I think you would agree with me that that's a name he wouldn't have in the day, at the time he lived. He, for four years, he was the Hebrew guy in Pharaoh's court, the Hebrew boy or the Hebrew stranger in Pharaoh's court. As you remember, he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised up in Pharaoh's court. For another four years of his life, he flew from Egypt because he had killed somebody. And so he was a murderer, but he, he was an Egyptian in the wilderness of Midian. He was an Egyptian. He was called as an Egyptian by the people of Midian. And for four years, he was the leader of Israel, a sort of a prophetic figure to the Israelites. The man of God is one that we're presented with here. Right? It's an interesting thing to think as we approach the psalm of this, who is this man, Moses, and try to see and try to imagine when, how, where would Moses have written this? And it's particularly revealing when we think about the psalm through those lenses. Now, this psalm uh, was probably written during the wandering years of the people of Israel in the wilderness. You remember that the Israelites got at the very doorsteps of the Promised Land in about two years of March from Egypt, but then they sent some spies out, and you remember how they were, the spies came back with a report of how the land was, and the people of Israel were particularly discouraged about taking the land. They didn't trust, it really was an issue with trusting God. They didn't quite trust God, that God would deliver them and would give them the land. And because of that particular disobedience, God punished them, and he said so very clearly, with uh, having that generation that was at the doorsteps of the promised land not enter the promised land, but instead having that generation walk for four years, so two plus 38, the two they have already done, plus 38, in the wilderness, so they could die. And their children then would be the ones to conquer the promised land. So it's in this sort of framework that we have the psalm. But you think, why was this psalm placed here? This is one of the oldest psalms in the Psalter. Why was it placed in sort of the middle of the book? 
right? And if you notice, the Bible might have this note. It's here that we start book four of the books we have within the, the, the book of Psalms. I would suggest to you that it's probably because of its topic. If you look uh, at the topic explored before in, uh, in Psalm 89, I think this can quite be a good answer to the question posed in verse 46. In verse 46 of, of Psalm 89, the psalmist asks, How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? So it's a, a, sort of a question of where is God? Where are you, God? And if you look at our verse here, first verse of our psalm, we have a place where God is. Actually, the second verse. God is in eternity, right? He's there from everlasting to everlasting in eternity. Also, I would suggest to you that this is the beginning of sort of a comforting exaltation of God's character that happens in this book. You see, Psalm 90 talks about the eternity of God, man's frailty, and our topics we're going to cover tonight. In Psalm 91, if you flip over your page, it deals with safety in abiding in the presence of God. And then Psalm 92 praises God for his love and faithfulness. Then Psalm 93 talks about God's eternal reign. So you see the crescendo. And Psalm 90 starts that crescendo, sort of turns the, the book around, and turns it back. And what ends to be just the, an exaltation of God's character. Now, the theme discussed here is, we can summarize it in a few words, but I, I would suggest to you that it's how to live a meaningful life in a chaotic and troublesome world. How to live as a Christian, as a believer, here Moses is a believer, in a chaotic and troublesome world, a meaningful life. And I want to give you some things to think of, and I want to give you three vital principles for living a meaningful life. And as we go on, I'm going to comment on them. The first one is that our existence is brief, but God's character is eternal, and that we see in verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, your God. Now, the word here used for dwelling place is actually a word that is often referred and used to refer to the tabernacle or the temple, the place where God dwells. It also used as in reference to someone's home, as their dwelling place, and also used in the, in the Old Testament as a reference for the place where animals live. Right, the lair of animals. So it's sort of a retreat, an asylum, a, a den, a dwelling, a place where you find refuge and comfort. And here the psalmist, Moses, talks about God being his dwelling place. God being the dwelling place of believers throughout generations. Not the place where they were in, not their houses, their tents in the desert, not Egypt, the palace, Pharaoh's palace, not Medium with his wife and kids living a peaceful life as a shepherd, not even as the leader of Israel. No, no, God was Moses' dwelling place. God was his house. 
the camp moved from time to time, but Moses's dwelling place never moved. He dwelt in God. And this is an idea that many believers in the Old Testament and New Testament had. You remember Jacob? When Jacob meets Pharaoh coming from the famine, coming to live with his son, Joseph, Pharaoh asks him how old he was. And Jacob's answer is, goes more like, like this in Genesis 47. The days of the year of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and able have been the days and the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob saw himself and his fathers as pilgrims. Pilgrims in the land that they had, God had promised to them, but he saw them as pilgrims. Not as inhabitants, actually, not as conquerors of the land where they were living in. Now, the true dwelling place of a believer is God. And in New Testament language, you can, you can see it like we see it in John 15, where Jesus talk, talks about abiding in him, how we should abide in him. As a branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, so we should abide in Jesus. And he talks, that's sort of the same language, have our dwelling place, God, when confronted with the brevity of our lives, how fast time goes by and how short is our life, we must take the Lord as our dwelling place, eternal, immortal, invisible God who wisely rules over the universe. Now, the second principle I want to talk about and make you think about tonight Second principle for a meaningful life is that we are frail, but God is sovereign. And uh, we'll see that in verses three to six. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past. And like a watch in the night, you carry them away like a flood, they are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it's cut down and withers. Now in verse 3, the psalmist uses the word destruction. The word here is literally crushed, crushed to powder, polarized. So God can and has the power to turn men and women, by the way, into powder, into dust. And then in the same verse, we have this phrase, return, O children of men. The Hebrew there, actually, see if you can spot a word you know, a name you know. It's Saben Adam, which is Adam, the same word for the first man. It's a reference, a direct reference to the curse after the fall. Remember when God said to Adam that he had sinned against him in Genesis 3, and that because of that, I'm going to read you. The verses actually in Genesis 3. You don't have to go there. But listen to what God said to Abraham, to Adam, in Genesis 3 17 to 19. God said to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Now, notice this. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, into dust you shall return. So it's the same idea. The, the psalmist here is bringing that idea to the psalm. God has the power and we will eventually bring every single man and woman to dust. Because from dust we came and to dust we return. And then the psalmist lists three pride-crushing metaphors for life. Really, if you're high on your, on your pride, just read verses 5 and 6 and you see it puts you right into place back again humbles you. First metaphor is the metaphor of a flood, like a flood ravaging everything on its path, so death overpowers the life of a person. It's like a flood, you can't stop a flood. Well, today we can have mechanisms to prevent floods, but in that day, a flood was something you could not control. When the river flowed over its banks, there, there could, you couldn't do anything. There wasn't any solution to it. You just had to wait until the damage was done to see if you could repair anything afterwards. Like a flood, carrying everything away. Like the passing hours during sleep. So like sleep. God feels like our lives are so short, it's like sleep. When we sleep, we, we don't see the hours passing by, right? So is the life of a person in the eyes of God. He's so internal. And our lives are so brief, brief, really, just a sneeze, just like sleep. Like the grass, the third metaphor, like the grass with a short lifespan. The grass that, in this arid regions here, grass finds a little bit of humidity during the night, the dew falls, and then starts sprouting up, and then catches a little bit of the first rays of sun in the morning, starts growing, it's promising, it's good, it's growing, it's getting green, and then... The heat of the day starts burning it away, burning it away, drying it up. And by the end of the day, the grass is gone. It's dead. So are we. We're just like the grass. Now, in all of that, the psalmist is trying to show us that God is sovereign, sitting sovereign in his throne, controlling our lives. Now let's go to the third principle. The third principle to live a life that is meaningful. Life with God, but that is meaningful. Is that we have earned God's righteous wrath, but he is merciful. That's until the end of the psalm, verses 7 and onwards. And I'm not going to read the whole text, but I'm going to point out certain things. So let's read verse 7. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are terrified. We all have provoked God's anger. And a good understanding of life and the brevity of life and the urgency of things and the priority we should give to things in our lives, we should have that at the forefront of our heads. How we are not, we don't, God doesn't own anything to us. It's quite the opposite. We own everything to Him. Because we have provoked His anger. And if we live 70 years, 80 years, Moses got to live 120 years. But human life is usually brief. Even 120 is very brief in the eyes of God. Think about a generation, think about a century, think about a, 
millennium. Our lives are but a glimpse in that. And inevitably, death came after the fall. Death is consequence of sin, right? So in a certain way, this is sort of the same thought that Ecclesiastes echoes. You know, vanity of vanity, everything is vanity. And it is, if you're from a purely materialistic point of view, it is useless, pointless, right? And that's sort of the part of the psalm that particularly gripped me when I was reading it for the first time back in the day when God started working in my heart. Is that life without God is pointless. Right? And if we don't have the right perspective, we might be contaminated by that. Even in a life with God, we might be tempted to think that. So let's look at this. Let's move on. I'll give you, get you verse 12, which is the verse I'm driving it towards. Verse 11, um, who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear you so is your wrath. Again, is the idea of, you see, Moses is not trying to explain away life's curses. Oh yeah, that's because you sin. No, that's because you're not praying enough. Now he's acknowledging that there is suffering, that there is, there is death, there is the brevity of life, there is chaos, and that is a consequence of sin. But he is doing that, looking to God, not trying to explain it away, trying to understand. In, from the eyes of God. Verse 12, the beautiful verse of this psalm. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's the pivotal verse in this psalm. If we didn't have this, probably the psalm would have a different, totally different tone. But that's the, the answer of Moses or the psalmist, and I think it should be our answer as we contemplate these things, as we contemplate how brief our life is, how God God's character is unchanging and eternal. How we have provoked God's anger, but He is merciful, has provided to us. And as New Testament believers, we know what's the solution. We know that is in Christ and has been provided to us freely, mercifully. But how do we react to that? And the question and the, really the, the plea here of the psalmist is that God would teach the psalmist how to number the days properly. Now, numbering the days is very interesting because calendar is something most of us don't really think about, but we end up making our calendars gravitate toward things that are important to us. Whole nations have dates where they celebrate. They stop to celebrate things that are important to them. People count the days to, to that date or from that date. Our own calendar is a Christian calendar for and after Christ. It doesn't come as a coincidence. It's because somebody back in, in the past thought it was important to mark all our dates by this particular event, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in our lives, we do that. Some people go through very difficult things in their lives, an accident or something, and they survive, and they say, oh, I was born again. It's been 15 years since I've been reborn or given a second chance in life. We are counting their days. 
we count the days of our babies, you know, seven days old, eight days old, 90 days old, two weeks old, 15 years old. Yeah, well, then they're not babies anymore, but we count the days, we count our days. But Moses here in the desert, just waiting for everybody to die. Every day is like the other. We're leaving the camp and they leave behind a graveyard full of bones of people. They were strong when they left Egypt. They were healthy. And they disobeyed the Lord and now they are suffering under his wrath and they are being left dead in the desert. And every day seems like the other. The Israelites are rebellious. They don't seem to hear God. And he asks, O oh Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. He goes on, return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And then he makes a request that none of us thinks of making when we are suffering, when we're going through difficult times, when we think everything is stalled, when we don't see the work of our hands, when we don't see fruit from our labor, when we think we're doing things that are not Render service, rendering service to the Lord. All, all that we're doing is not showing work. He asked the Lord to change his heart, Moses' heart, or the people that are singing this. Make us glad according, that's verse 15. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. How come? Quite a difficult prayer to make, eh? Lord, make me glad according to the day in which you have afflicted me, in which I have seen evil. You see, if you look under the light of what we've seen so far, you understand why. Because God is eternal. He is the same God that was guiding them out of Egypt with a powerful hand. He's still there. He still cares about the Israelites. His promises are still there. He's the sovereign Lord, yes, controls their lives, knows the exact day and hour they will die. He has a plan for this. So he is asking, Lord, make us, no, he's not asking, Lord, explain me why this is happening to me. He is asking, Lord, make me glad according to the days in which you have afflicted me, the years in which I have seen evil. And as a worker of of the Lord as a servant of the Lord he asks in verse 16 let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children he's asking for himself but also for generation the generation that will come let the glory of God be shown and appear to these children these children here being he's referring in the first instance to the children who will inherit the land conquer the land but also, he is referring to all those who will believe in the, in the future. He's probably referring to us as well. We can be included here. In verse 17, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. The beauty of the Lord. The sum of all his gracious are our acts. Everything be illustrated in us. So that we would be not just servants of God, but representatives of God. And as a church of Christ, 
We are like that, ambassadors of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Jesus Christ, if you think, is at the right hand of God. But he is also on earth, walking. Walking down the streets, going to workplaces, going to stores, sitting on these pews. Jesus Christ is present in the world, in the body, in his body, the church. And the prayer of Moses here can be echoed to us. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And Moses finishes with a prayer to, so that God would help him and establish the work of his hands. Everything he had done all those years, walking with those people, stubborn they were, yes. But he is asking God. He knows he's not trusting his own work. He did a good job. Mind you, if you read, Moses was a great leader from a human standpoint, but he, was, he wasn't confident on his own work and his own abilities. He trusted in the Lord and asked the Lord to establish the work of his hands. Twice, not once, you see? And establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, as I close, I want you to think about this. How do you live a meaningful life in Christ, in God? Maybe you can take Psalm 90. And maybe you can be impacted as I was. And I am always, when I reread this psalm, the Lord always reminds me of those things. And I have to work on many of them still. Trusting in God's unchanging eternal character. Making Him my dwelling place. My place of rest. My place of refuge of being mindful of the brevity of my life. I'm not immortal, so I need to use my time and my energy to God's glory. And then to remember God's, God's mercy. Everything that I do, it all comes to nothing if I'm doing without God. It's by His mercy that I'm not consumed by His wrath because He sent His Son. It's by His mercy that anything and everything I do will render some fruit for eternity. So I hope you're blessed with this song, as I was blessed, and that you also may ask the Lord to teach you to number your days so that you may, you may gain a heart of wisdom.